It's morning in America. It's Monitor Monday. For rural hospitals and small town clinics, big city health systems, and healthcare professionals, Monday means Monitor Monday. And Monday means gearing up for another week of audits by the government and health plans. Here now with the latest regulatory and audit news is the publisher of Rack Monitor and the host of Monitor Monday, Chuck Buck. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Monitor Monday. Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg testifying before Congress last week revealed the healthcare social media minute. Standing by to report our lead story this morning is national correspondent Tim Powell. Also on the rundown this morning, senior healthcare consultant Christy Pollock reports on the best practices when coding outpatient medical necessity claims. Monitor Monday correspondent J. Paul Spencer reports on the latest developments involving Medicare Advantage organizations and healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel begins her exclusive Rack Monitor two-part series on Medicaid, the State of the Union. Well, we begin this morning with Dr. Ronald Hirsch, who is making his rounds here on Monitor Monday. Monday Rounds is sponsored by R1 Physician Advisory Services. Here now making his Monday Rounds is Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Well, good morning, all. You know, I get a lot of questions about status changes. So to illustrate the mess, I want you to picture a patient So she's 75 years old and she presents to the ED at 9 a.m. on Monday morning with a cough. The ED doc does a workup and finds finds the patient has pneumonia. Antibiotics are started. The ED doc then calls the hospitalist to admit the patient at about 10.30 a.m. The hospitalist is upstairs in multidisciplinary rounds and the physician advisor will not let her leave to go see the patient. So she logs into the EMR and places an inpatient order and activates the pneumonia protocol. Admitting comes in and sees the patient, explains that they're being admitted as an inpatient, provides the first copy of the important message from Medicare, and gets it signed. The patient's then transported upstairs. After rounding on her ICU patients and seeing all of her sick patients, the hospitalist finally gets up to see this patient at about 3 p.m. Upon reviewing the chart, she realizes the patient should have been placed observation. The ED notes indicate that she was minimally hypoxic, not septic, and nothing suggested she would need two midnights. The hospital seeks out the case manager, who states that the condition code 44 process must be followed, so the UR doctor is tracked down and agrees. Written notification is provided to the patient, and a new order is written to change the status to outpatient with observation services. But the patient is upset because she was an inpatient six weeks ago for a hip replacement, and she would have no deductible for this admission. But she knows that the rules are the rules, so she concentrates on getting better. She goes home the next day and a month later gets the bill she expected for $470 for her outpatient coinsurance. Now let's look at the same patient again presenting exactly the same with a cough and being diagnosed with pneumonia. The ED doctor calls the hospitalist, who's again being held hostage in rounds with a physician advisor, but this time she asked the ED doctor to place a verbal admission order for her, which she will authenticate later. Once again, the patient gets the IMM and is happy she will have no cost based on her prior admission. The hospitalist then rounds at 3 p.m. and realizes the patient should have been placed observation. She finds the case manager who notes that the admission order was verbal. The case manager tells the hospitalist to enter an order for observation and never sign that verbal admission order. The patient goes home the next day. Six weeks later, she gets a bill for $470, which is indicated as an outpatient cope insurance. 
She calls the billing office livid and is told that she was not notified because CMS says if a verbal admission order is not signed, it was never valid. And furthermore, there's no requirement for patient notification. Now this makes no sense. CMS created condition code 44 to allow status change while protecting patient rights. Then they go and create this giant loophole that violates patient rights. This drives me crazy. CMS either needs to get rid of condition code 44 or require it for all changes. Back to you, Chuck. Thank you very much, Dr. Hirsch. That was Rack Monitor Contributor and the Vice President of R1 Physician Advisory Services, Ronald Hirsch, MD. Dr. Hirsch was making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Medicare Advantage plans are back in the news, and it's good news. Monitor Monday National Correspondent J. Paul Spencer has that report. Good morning, Paul. Good morning, Chuck, and good morning, everyone. Well, one issue that came to the fore in 2017 was the fact that Medicare Advantage plans may have paid as many as $128 million out in 2007 for claims where another payer was the primary payer on that particular claim. Now, this could have come in any uh, in any type. It could have been a casualty claim. It could have been another insurance that the beneficiary had. But based on this spectacular finding from 2017, a law firm in Florida called MSP Recovery, along with their data ana- analytics unit, decided to take it upon themselves to sue healthcare organizations, not only in the state of Florida, but across the country. The first decision from one of these suits was handed down over the last seven days. In this particular suit, MSP Recovery uh, sued Tenet, uh, which has a number of different uh, facilities in Florida, claiming that they over were overpaid by Medicare Advantage for claims that should have been paid by another assignee. They made this determination based on some of the analysis that they did of claims information, uh, working for Florida Healthcare Plus, uh, which was a Medicare Advantage plan in the state of Florida. What happened when the case came to court is that tenants' attorneys claimed that based on the Medicare Secondary Payer Act, this particular law firm, not being a Medicare Advantage plan itself, lacked legal standing to sue any healthcare company that received Medicare Advantage payments. In this particular case, the judge agreed with the tenant uh, organization and dismissed three of the plaintiff's claims with prejudice, dismissed two others without prejudice, and declined to exercise supplemental jurisdiction over claims brought under state law. Now, this was a federal case that was brought, uh, uh, but MSP Recovery now has uh, 17 similar actions that are pending not only in Florida but across the country that put this in jeopardy. Now, uh, I would recommend that everyone listening uh, pay attention to what is going on with some of these suits. While MSP recovery has been determined to lack legal standing, you would know uh, that Medicare Advantage organizations uh, do have that legal standing. If this is something that they decide uh, to bring forward 
as their own class action lawsuit against healthcare companies. This could have a deleterious effect on health systems across the country. As it stands now, uh, we have one decision with many other decisions uh, pending, and it's something that we'll be keeping an eye on here at Monitor Monday. And with that, I'll throw it back to Chuck. Thanks, Paul, very much. That was Monitor Monday National Correspondent J. Paul Spencer. Paul is a senior healthcare consultant with Doctors Management. And coming up in about uh, nine minutes after the hour in your time zone, we're going to hear from Nicole Emanuel, Christy Pollard, and Tim Powell. This is Monday. It's April 16th, and you're listening to Monitor Monday. Stand by. You've read the news, and it's not good. Due to the backlog of pending appeals, it may take years before your facility has a hearing at the ALJ. The good news is there are new initiatives designed to reduce the backlog of appeals. Learn how to improve your chances to prevail at the ALJ faster than you ever thought possible. Attend an important webcast conducted by famed appeals attorney Andrew Walkler. Learn the best program to improve your chances to prevail at the ALJ. Register now for Learn New Approaches to Reduce the Backlog at the ALJ. This important webcast is Tuesday, April 24th at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. To register, click on the rotating ad on the Rack Monitor homepage or call 800-252-1578, extension 2. Thank you, Clark Anthony. By the way, there is still time to register for this very important webcast that's coming your way. Tuesday, April 24th, it features our pal, healthcare attorney Andrew Walkler. And by the way, you can hear today's live broadcast now on demand. That means you can hear it anytime, anywhere, and it's free. You can listen to us on Stitcher, Apple, Spotify, and Google. And for some best practices for coding medical necessity for outpatient claims, we turn to senior healthcare consultant Christy Pollard. She has that report. Good morning, Christy. Welcome to the broadcast. Good morning, Chuck, and thank you for having me. It's great to be back on Monitor Monday. So I'm here this morning to talk about everyone's favorite eye roll, medical necessity versus coding guidelines. Last month I wrote an article for Rack Monitor about the discrepancies we see on secondary diagnosis codes on outpatient claims, and my advice was to just follow the guidelines. And I'm sure I sounded like some out-of-touch, parroted rule follower spouting, follow the guidelines, follow the guidelines. But we do realize that hospitals are up against a lot in trying to get their claims paid ethically. If you look at the the coding of secondary diagnoses strictly from the perspective of the coding guidelines, it's rather simple to see what should be coded, except for the whole physician documentation thing. But the reality is that we use codes to see what was done to the patient and why. And those codes, as assigned by the coding guidelines, don't always show the whole story. One of my favorite examples is the patient who comes into the ER complaining of chest pain and undergoes a cardiac workup, including a stress test. But the final diagnosis is reflux disease, and the code for GERD doesn't meet medical necessity, and the claim gets denied. So the good news is there are reason for visit fields on the UB that can be used to report up to three diagnoses for medical necessity purposes. The bad news is those fields are optional and payers don't have to use them. So the real issue is how do we deal with those situations where the payer doesn't look at the reason for visit fields? And in those cases, textbook answer number one is educate your payers on the coding guidelines and try to get them to follow them. Textbook answer number two is to code according to the guidelines and appeal medical necessity denials on the back end. 
Unfortunately, we don't live in a textbook world. And when your organization turns out hundreds of claims daily, it can be tempting to tell your coders, oh, just pick up all the signs and symptoms documented in the medical record, even if they don't meet reporting criteria, just so we can cover medical necessity. And that's really where I advise using caution. This catch-all answer to solving the issue of medical necessity denials can land you in hot water in a coding audit. And my recommendation is that coders should be looking at payer policies and determining when to add a separate diagnosis for medical necessity. My viewpoint's not a popular one, and I can't tell you how many coding managers I've had ask me if I know what reviewing payer policies will do to a coder's productivity. And the short answer is yes, I do. I've been a coding manager, and I understand the demands of coding coder productivity, but it can't be all about transactional work. If we didn't need a human interface between the documentation and the coding, we could just automate the whole process and leave the coder out of it. But the coder is there to make these difficult decisions. I've had people tell me that it's not the coder's responsibility to review payer policies, but I argue that since the payer policies include codes, that coders really should be aware of what their payers are paying. There are some proprietary tools out there that can help coders with medical necessity issues, and I've seen both standalone software that integrates into organization systems as well as tools built into encoders to bring medical necessity issues to the the forefront for the coder. So rather than thinking of how checking payer policies will impact coding productivity, how about we think about situations like these can help create better rounded revenue integrity professionals. So back to you, Chuck. Thank you very much, Christy. That was Senior Healthcare Coding Consultant, Christy Pollard. Christy is with the Hagen Consulting Group. As you heard us mention, Rack Monitor is publishing an exclusive two-part report on Medicaid State of the Union. That report is being authored by healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel. Here now with part one on Medicaid State of the Union is Nicole Emanuel. Good morning, Nicole. Welcome to the program. Good morning and happy Monitor Monday. I have comprised the latest and greatest in Medicaid news state by state. This was not a small task. So what is happening in your state? We're going to start with Alabama. OIG has audited Alabama and has recommended that Alabama improve its Medicaid security program, aligning it with federal requirements. OIG also stated that Alabama needs to provide adequate oversight to its contractors and address other vulnerabilities OIG found in its audit. Expect more audits in Alabama. In particular, the Medicaid maternity program is under the microscope. Apparently, healthcare providers who provide medically necessary services to women on the maternity program have been duped, and the women had already given birth. Recoupments abound. Arizona. Arizona expanded Medicaid, but with an improved Section 1115 waiver. Arizona apparently has failed to collect up to $36.7 million in rebates from prescription drug manufacturers since 2010 and may need to pay the federal government a portion of that amount, according to a new federal audit, which means more audits on providers to reconcile the payment, the payback. Arkansas. Arkansas has announced Program Integrity is focusing its upcoming audits specifically on home health, long-term care facilities, and inpatient hospital stays. California. 
California is proposed draft language of a new state plan amendment that would make major changes to federally qualified health care centers and rural health clinic reimbursements. If approved, the SPA would be retroactive to January 1, 2018, so expect audits and recoupments. The proposed state plan amendment implements multiple new requirements for FQHC and RHCSs. For example, the proposed productivity standard requires physicians to document 3,200 visits per year and applicable allied health professionals like physician assistants and nurse practitioners to document 2,600 visits per year. Colorado, Colorado as not unexpectedly, has one of the more lenient regulatory environments. For example, Colorado's permissive approach to regulating more than 700 licensed residential and outpatient drug treatment centers in the state got the attention of a congressional subcommittee investigating the drug rehab industry last year. Connecticut, interestingly, on March 21, 2018, the General Assembly increased Connecticut's 8,500 home care workers' wages in adding workers' compensation, even though these workers are being compensated by Medicaid. The increased wage will be $16.25 by 2020 and will cost Connecticut, after federal Medicaid reimbursement, $725,900 in fiscal year 2018 almost $7 million in 2019, and over $9.3 million in 2020. If you have a home health agency in Connecticut, you better make sure that lawmakers were smart enough to increase the reimbursement rates. Otherwise, a lot of home health agencies will go out of business. Delaware. Beginning this year, Delaware gives additional weight to value-based care when determining payment. Rather than paying solely for volume of care, hospital stays, tests, and procedures, regardless of outcomes, Delaware will pay for achieving optimal health for its Medicaid recipients. Florida. Lawmakers are considering opioid prescription limits for Medicaid recipients. The proposals would limit prescriptions for opioids to three-day supplies, but also allow for up to seven-day supplies if physicians deem it medically necessary. If passed, I question whether lawsuits will be filed claiming that it violates the Equal Protection Clause of the Constitution because it violates parity between Medicaid recipients and private pay insured. And what about the people suffering chronic long-term pain, especially given Florida's demographics? I'm running out of time here, but I can't wait to tell you about a lawsuit in Illinois that is increasing reimbursement rates for Medicaid. Back to you, Chuck. Thank you very much, Nicole. That was Nicole Emanuel. Nicole is a Rack Monitor contributor, and she's a partner at the Potomac Law Group. Nicole's series begins this Thursday in the Rack Monitor E-News, and Nicole returns next Monday for Part 2. Good morning and welcome, Mr. Zuckerberg. Is Facebook a media company? I consider us to be a technology company. Was your data included in the data sold to the malicious third parties? Your personal data? Yes. It was. Yes or no, will you commit to changing all the user default settings to minimize to the greatest extent possible the collection and use of users' data? Congressman, we try to collect and, and give people the ability to But I'd to like you to data. answer yes or no, if you could. 
Congressman, this is a complex issue that I think is deserves more than a one-word answer. Well, again, that's disappointing to me because I think you should make that commitment. Can you manage the issues that are before you, or does Congress need to intercede? Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg testifying before Congress last week revealed a healthcare social media menace. As we mentioned at the top of the broadcast, 87 million users had their private data taken, and many were healthcare professionals. And now hackers and criminals can break into healthcare systems. So here now to report our lead story is Monitor Monday National Correspondent Tim Powell. Tim, this is really kind of kind of a problem, isn't it? Yes, it is, Chuck. And many of us watched Mark Zuckerberg testify before Congress. He was testifying after we found out that Facebook had released the data of 87 million Facebook users to a company named Cambridge Analytica, who in turn sold the data to political campaigns. Let's briefly talk about what happened at Facebook. A researcher named Alexander Kogan, spelled with a Russian spelling, interestingly enough, developed a Facebook application or app, and it's one of those quiz apps on the surface. Unfortunately, if you answer the quiz, your Facebook information was sent to the app creator. No big foul yet, but this was a special app. It then pulled the information of all of your friends and contacts on Facebook without their permission. How do we get to 87 million users? The app went on to gather the data of the contacts of your contacts, but we have virus spreads. Facebook and government bodies are still trying to figure out how much information was gathered. Cambridge Analytica has confirmed that it also harvested some private e-messages. Facebook was told to delete the data by Facebook once they found out what happened. And the folks at Cambridge Analytica, although they said they had done this, they continued selling the data to political campaigns. Mr. Kogan, who began working for Cambridge Analytica after creating the app, insisted that the app was modified to collect only a user's name, birth date, and the pages that they had liked. We have only the assurances of Mr. Kogan and Cambridge Analytica on what data they have, and we already know that they have been less than forthcoming. Why is this such a big concern for healthcare? Here's the scare. If I know enough about you, I can breach your system account. If I know where you work, I can find out what systems are used by your healthcare company. I can get your email address. I just, if I just know where you work and your name, I can use it to send emails with hacking tools to you or your coworkers that look like they're coming from you. Let's assume that we trust Cambridge Analytica or someone like them, and they just know your name, birth date, and Facebook pages that you liked. Lots of people like their employer's Facebook page. Now we have your name, employer's name, and your birth date. I can Google your company domain and find your company by knowing your domain, and I can get to your email address. With just this much, I can start sending emails to you and your fellow employees. I can include special programs that allow me to take over your computer or your company computer to get access of information, or maybe I just lock the computer up and demand an extortion payment. If I can get control of your computer, maybe I can also log into the software with patient information so I can sell the information to identity thieves. What can be done? First, a dose of reality. Social media is here to stay, and platforms like Facebook are free to users, and Facebook makes huge profits. Facebook users are the product. Facebook can allow users to block themselves off completely from advertisers and potential hackers based on their business models. Here are some common sense things that can be done with all this in mind. First, you can start by being wary of emails that seem odd, like Dun and Bradstreet suddenly needing your response to an impending issue when you've never dealt with this kind of information before. Without opening such emails, notify your IT department. If you do happen to open a suspicious email, immediately call your IT department so that you can limit the damage that's caused. Next, be careful about what you share about your company on social media. You may think you know the members of a Facebook group and that the fellow employees are actually your fellow employees. You may not know them as well as you think. Consider staying away from, from these groups or clearing your memberships with your IT department. Review your company's social media rules and comply with them. 
Also, follow Mr. Zuckerberg's advice and review the privacy agreements or settings for your social media applications. If you're not comfortable with the privacy rules of a social media company, maybe you don't need to use that particular application. If you are comfortable with the agreement, what settings do you want to use on the related privacy settings for your account? Never use personal information to make up company passwords. Change your passwords regularly, even if it's not required by IT department, and consider adopting the same rules for your passwords for personal use. When you walk away from your computer, lock it. You should also change your computer settings on your company computer so the computer would lock after a period of inactivity. Even if someone manages to get access to your computer, they may not be able to do anything without unlocking it with your computer login password. All of these rules are like trying to uh, buying an alarm for your house or getting a guard dog. You can't guarantee that it will stop all the thieves, but you can get them to pick the easier house down the block. And with that, back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Tim, very much. That was Modern Monday National Correspondent Tim Powell. Tim is a nationally recognized expert on regulatory matters, including the False Claims Act, ZPIC audits, and the OIG. He's a member of the Rack Monitor Editorial Board. And by the way, you can read his report this coming Thursday in the Rack Monitor E-News. At this point, we welcome back Dr. Ronald Hirsch for some closing thoughts on today's broadcast. So what's on your mind this morning, Dr. Hirsch? First, I want to give a shout-out to Dr. Thompson Boyd, who's listening from Philadelphia. He has been a loyal listener since the beginning of Rack Monitor, whenever that happened to occur. And um, he is an informatics guru. I met him at the American Board of Quality Assurance and Utilization Review Physician Conference this last week. So today, in my second session, I want to give you some information you can use. Because my first session was just a classic Hirsch whining session. So... Um, this is about the racks, which actually makes it nice because this is rack monitor. So as you may recall, CMS has started to periodically release a list of issues that they're considering for approval for the racks. And they just released a new one. It includes four items that you should know about. The first one is an automated issue. They're going to be looking at physician claims, which are duplicates of claims that have already been paid. This makes perfect sense. CMS should not be paying for the same service twice. But I ask, why the heck does CMS have to pay a contractor a contingency fee for every duplicate payment they find? This should be a requirement of every MAC contract to never pay a claim twice for the same service. And the MAC should be obligated to find any that do slip through. And if this is going to be a RAC issue, I say the contingency fee should be paid by the MAC who let the duplicate claim get through and not by the taxpayers. So we'll see if that gets approved. Next on the list is defibrillators. And this one's really fascinating for several reasons. First of all, as our loyal listeners know, in February, CMS changed the coverage indications. That means depending on the data service, there will be different criteria so providers need to really watch the racks like a hawk if they get this approved. Second, CMS lists this as an issue for outpatient hospital, ambulatory surgery center, and physician. Now, I don't want to get too excited, but that may mean that if the ICD did not meet coverage guidelines, CMS may actually give the racks permission to recoup the physician's fee. I'll believe it when I see it, but we can be hopeful. Third, the listed codes include removal of an ICD lead via thoracotomy, and that's an inpatient-only procedure, and it really has no business being audited by the RACs. The next thing that they're proposing to review is a DME issue, the medical necessity of air-fluidized beds. So if you're a DME supplier, 
you better make sure you're following and documenting all the guidelines. And finally, the last item on the list is medical necessity and proper coding for percutaneous implant, implantation of a nerve stimulator. I tried to do a little research on this and it's way too complicated, but if that's a service you offer, you may be soon in the rack's crosshairs. That's my second report, Chuck, back to you. Thank you very much, Dr. Hirsch. That was Rack Monitor Contributor and the Vice President of R1 Physician Advisory Services, Ronald Hirsch, MD. Dr. Hirsch, stay on the line because uh, a couple of questions that are coming up here. There's a question from Robin uh, for you that I'd like you to respond to. Sure. So Robin notes in my condition code 44 issue that the Medicare recipient um, will be getting a moon notice. And if they get, I should call it moon because N stands for notice. If she gets the moon, she would have known she's observation. Well, remember that the moon federally is only required after 24 hours of observation. So since this patient was switched to observation as of um, 3 p.m., and the doctor said the patient will probably go home in the morning, they chose not to give the moon. So she didn't have the, require, the notice. Now, in some states, the moon, or the, there's a state requirement that they get observation notice for any observation order. And in that case, the patient would have been informed. Very good, Dr. Hirsch. Uh, just a couple of comments. Rose uh, wanted to know if Nicole's uh, Medicaid state of union report is going to be published. Yes, it is going to be published in two parts. You're going to be able to read part one this coming Thursday in the Rack Monitoring News. You'll be able to Read the second part the following Thursday, and also a reminder that Nicole's going to be with us next Monday on Monitor Monday. And a further reminder, you can now listen to us on demand. You can hear us on Stitcher. You can hear us on Apple Podcasts. You can hear us on Spotify, Tuned In, and, of course, Google Plays. By the way, uh, Christy Pollard, if you're there, I want to let you know that Lisa said that you hit the nail on the head. She said a good explanation of situation coders experience on a daily basis, good ideas, to help solve the coding and reimbursement documentation, Catch-22. That's from Lisa. That's to you, Christy. Thanks very much. That's going to be a wrap for this edition of Monitor Monday, and I want to thank you very much for being with us. And, of course, special thanks to our guests today, uh, Nicole Emanuel, Dr. Ronald Hurst, Christy Pollard, Tim Powell, and J. Paul Spencer. We thank you very much for being with us today. We look forward to your coming back next Monday for another edition of Monitor Monday. Uh, that's when Nicole Emanuel is going to come back and have part two on the Medicaid State of the Union. Thank you very much for that. Until then, I'm Chuck Buck speaking on behalf of Monitor Monday and Rack Monitor. Thank you so very much for being with us. Monitor Monday is a presentation of Rack Monitor. <laughs>